We'll be looking at uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Let's, let me read through that. Uh, read the first three verses of chapter 2 of 2 Peter. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now our text this evening. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So last week we looked at um, the characterization of the um, false teachers. Had a historical analog. You know, he compared them with uh, false teachers in the uh, Old Testament. And then uh, <clears throat> some of their essential features. And he listed three. Uh, things that they would secretly be introducing, uh, also ultimately denying the master, the Lord Jesus, who bought them, and then bringing upon themselves wrath. So he keeps going on this false teacher theme. must have been very uh, problematic for his audience. All right. Uh, well, let's look then at the success of the false teachers in verse 2. Notice the connecting word, and, and many will follow. So here's an important additional feature of the picture. Uh, Peter mentions their widespread success. You know, they're having to beat people off with a stick. <laughs> Just so many of them around. And, but he goes from that, their popularity to their tr the tragic result that will come about. So let's look at their widespread uh, following. And here, <clears throat> notice he says, uh, and many will follow. Well, this underlines their success. The, the success of the false teachers, at least on a short-term scale. They will uh, uh, attract their adherents Get this now, not first of all from the pagans, but from the church. From the church, y'all. And that's often what heresies and cults do, uh, usually do. Uh, we read that um, many will follow. Numerous individuals will get in step with them. They're teaching with its accompanying moral depravity. Notice what he says here. Um, <clears throat> and many will follow what? Their godly lives. How strict they are with prayer. What is it? Their sensuality. Their sensuality. Uh, this is the idea of just... An absence of restraint in their moral lives. It denotes excess. I think the uh, 
Maybe the King James has lasciviousness there. Many will follow their sensuality. You know, the depraved conduct of the false teachers. Again, the idea of uh, absence of restraint. And it may mean, that just the, the way it's written here, it may mean their uh, excesses are repeated and habitual. Or it may mean it's all manner, all types of excesses and extremes of immorality that's being referred to here. Uh, one commentator seemed to um, go for, prefer the latter, the extremes of immorality. Um, one writer uh, said clearly these false teachers, uh, clearly they permitted and defended immorality in a very broad sense. Can you imagine defending it? And no doubt they were articulate with it as well. Uh, you know, the, the term for people that are like this are antinomians. You probably heard that word anti against nomian from namas meaning law. Anti-law. You know, don't, don't give me the rules. Don't tell me what God says in his Ten Commandments. Don't give me that stuff. You're a legalist. <laughs> no, that's not the point. Uh, but these are <clears throat> antinomians who relaxed the moral restraints of the gospel on the cravings of their own flesh. It's interesting here that heretical teaching does not always lead to immoral conduct. But there is often a connection. In this letter, Peter will repeatedly mention and condemn the sensuality of the false teachers. Let me just quickly give you a couple of verses where he does that. Chapter 2, verse 7, 10, 12, 14, 18 to 19, verse 22... And then in chapter 3, verse 3, he keeps coming back on this theme. Uh, <clears throat> the connection between their antinomian uh, teaching and yet it, heretical teaching, yet it often led into immoral conduct. All right, well, they have a widespread following. Uh, let's look at the tragic impact of this. You know, we can, uh, you don't have to be a prophet to imagine the considerable damage that would be done in any church. You have people like that. The, again, back in our text, he says, uh, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. You know, they're professing Christians. You know, they're connected with the church because of them. Now, that's uh, because of them. Of course, he said, verse 2, and the many will follow. Many will follow the practices of these false teachers. Many will readily follow out the moral implications of their antinomian teaching. 
Again, another one of the older commentators said, It is a sad truth that no doctrine, however senseless and monstrous, under which the guise of religious faith ministers to the sensual appetites of men, you know, however senseless or, or monstrous, will ever want followers. There will always be follow, followers this side of heaven for people who teach such things. And they may, they may have growing crowds. And what's the result of this? The result of this kind of behavior, it says, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now, this is a, a phrase that does not appear elsewhere in the New Testament, but it, it designates uh, Christianity as a way of life in harmony with the truth. In, of course, the truth embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Truth incarnate, John fourteen six. The Christian faith has an intellectual aspect uh, that must find practical expression in daily life. You know, yes, give me good information. <laughs> Teach me the truth. But it's more than just filling my head with accurate information. I need that truth to transform my life, my habits, the things I do in public, the things I do in private. I need the truth to be influencing me. Um, this uh, phrasing of the way of, you know, is a common uh, expression, especially in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, and the way of truth was a con is a common designation for Christianity in the book of Acts. I counted one, two, three, four, five, six times in the book of Acts where the this, the way of truth is described or used as the way of Christianity. Um, again, Peter using this language is another instance. Uh, for his contention that living, uh, living knowledge of God's truth must result in godly living. All right, thinking of the tragic impact, uh, the way of truth will be blasphemed. You know, for them, the, the watching world would see the evil conduct of these sensual individuals and would judge the entire church by that. Yeah. Um, as a result, the truth would be blasphemed again. Um, its reputation injured. Um, Peter has already shown his concern about this sort of issue in his first letter. First uh, Peter chapter two verse twelve, chapter three verse sixteen, chapter four verse fifteen. Similar themes. He keeps hitting, hitting those notes. James dealt with this. James chapter two. Paul brings it up in several of his letters. 
First Thessalonians 4, verse 12. His first letter to Timothy, chapter 5, verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 1. His letter to Titus, chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. All of those passages warn against this danger. Um, kind of taking a broader, you know, back up for a broader background here. Uh, slanderous accusations against the gospel were common in the early years of the church. You know, you've got a religious minority in this large, well-governed empire from Rome. And so you have Roman writers. We still have them, uh, have copies of their writing where they would attack Christianity. I think on other occasions I mentioned uh, the Roman historian Tacitus. And he wrote, he called Christianity a, dan- a deadly superstition. Hmm. And it went to the bestseller. <laughs> All the bookstores of Rome carried his work. Um, and the charge laid against uh, Christians during Nero's persecution was, quote, their hatred of the human race, end quote. Again, Tacitus records that. Uh, another... Um, <clears throat> Oh, he said uh, also, uh, I'm sorry, Tacitus also said they were hated. Christians were hated for their abominations and their faith was considered to be hideous and shameful. Uh, Another Roman writer, same time period. These are contemporaries with the original audience to whom Peter is writing. Suetonius echoed the sentiment of Tacitus by calling Christianity, quote, a new and wicked superstition. Hmm. So, can you imagine living in that kind of environment? If you didn't already have enough motivation just out of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to live a godly life, man, here's here's a whoosh. (laughs) Uh, You need some encouragement. How about the pressing and desperate need to live a blameless life? Wow. Okay. Tragic impact here. Um, All right. Well, we go from there to the motives of the false teachers. First, verse 3. And, connecting word, here's another feature of this picture. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So here's another facet to this picture. In their greed, they will exploit you. With false words. That's the atmosphere in which these Christians were living. It's the air that surrounded them. Greed here. Notice, and in their greed. You know, it's basically a desire for more. 
desire to have more. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. But there is also a bad sense to it as it's used here. The Greek term um, has that bad sense here. And it depicts an insatiable craving. A grasping after. You know, uh, on other occasions we've talked about the, the two different words that are used in the New Testament for covetousness. One of the words is this word. It's this. I, I need more. I want more. I want more. i got to have that. The other word is the very opposite. What I've got is mine and you ain't getting it. <laughs> so it's like very opposite. You know, grasping after or just selfishly holding on to it. And the word here is that insatiable grasping after. Uh, in their greed, he says, they will exploit you. Um, there were wandering philosophers in the Roman Empire. And they often used their artorial skills to milk their followers. There were also at the time uh, wandering Jewish magicians who were equally grasping and greedy. Uh, Paul took special care to avoid any impression even close to that uh, with his conduct. And he on some occasions would actively deny that covetousness marked his ministry. Think of his speech in Acts 20, verse 33. Again, his letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5. You remember the uh, uh, Simon Magus in Acts 8? And he, was, he was making money. Watch my magic tricks. You know. And uh, Peter encountered such an evil spirit. There with him and uh, foresaw that that kind of spirit would characterize religious teachers and would infiltrate the church. Um, in the generation or the days after the death of all the apostles, there was a we have another uh, book dated kind of early second century the Didache, and it's a Greek handbook on instruction of church life and order. And it warned, one of the sections in there, again, this is a generation removed from Second Peter, but still, and this is not, the Didache is non-apostolic, but again, there is warning against covetous, Religious teachers. Um, you know, backing up just a bit. Uh, scripture recognizes that the Christian worker has the right to financial support for their labors. You know, that's a given. Uh, Paul mentions it several times, as does Jesus. But at the same time, Scripture also condemns a mercenary spirit. That turns the ministry of the word of God into a pleasant way of personal gain. You know, um, 
All you have to do in recent years is just watch the news a little bit. You know, mansions and garages full of cars and, uh, by these faith healers and uh, TV evangelists. All right. Well, the covetous spirit of the false teachers will reveal itself in their deceptive methods. Notice back in our text again. They will exploit you with false words. That is, language carefully fabricated and molded to accomplish its purpose. Uh, The adjective false here is only uh, here in the New Testament. And it means to make up or to mold and shape, you know, to mold and shape words. They're artificially formed in order to deceive and lead astray. It's the very opposite of uh, what Peter called his audience, calls us to, as a sincere brotherly love. First uh, Peter 1, verse 22. He says, well, with their uh, fabricated speech, what will they be doing? They will exploit you. And it's a, it's a verb meaning to do business, to conduct trade. Okay? They'll exploit you. We get our English word emporium from this root. No. They will exploit you. Um, in keeping with uh, the cheating that often attended such trading, the term, this particular term, exploit, readily came to denote deceptive exploitation. Uh, these teachers would skillfully use their contrived arguments. As uh, one person says, as counterfeit coins in order to make a profitable bargain. They just knew how to spin a good tale, didn't they? How to convince people. Uh, the expression here, to exploit you, uh, may mean that they would seek to gain others, to gain Followers Make them members of their party and enhance their personal fame because of the large crowds. But it seems that Peter probably here means that they will make personal profit out of you. Okay. It's not a friendship. You're a source of income. Their concern will not be the welfare of the sheep. As one person put it, but only a concern to shear their wool. And again, he says, uh, they will exploit you. You. That would place Peter's original audience on notice that they would be subjected to such activity. Well, there's the 
motives of these false teachers. Uh, Peter concludes this section with the doom, the doom of these false teachers. Notice the end of verse 3, that last sentence. Their condemnation from long ago. And then he uses this kind of an active, almost a living thing. It says their condemnation is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. It almost, the verbs seem to have an imagery that, that uh, condemnation and destruction were living things and in hot pursuit of these people. So, let's look at uh, the end of verse 3. Peter concludes his portrait of these people with a statement of the impending doom of these teachers. Uh, Before launching on an additional elaboration of them and their practices, he feels uh, impelled once more to declare their certain doom. Uh, we saw that last week at the end of verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. Notice he says, bringing upon themselves swift, swift destruction. Notice he says, so back in our text, their condemnation is not idle. Uh, the language here is um, of judicial action. It includes the idea of investigation. The act of distinguishing. Well, their condemnation. Uh, again, the judicial action has already been taken against such sinners and the verdict of guilty pronounced. And it was done, notice, from long ago. That phrasing occurs only here and in chapter 3, verse 5. It indicates that judgment of these people involves no new principle. God's just using what he's always used. Okay, there's no new principle at work here. Um, the ancient divine verdict on such matter, matters, such sinners is not a dead letter and has been approaching ever since to deal with them. Notice it says uh, it's from long ago and it is not idle. It is not idle. That is, it's not inactive. It's not unfruitful. Uh, Categorically, the divine verdict has not grown weary Nor come become inert. It's progressing. It's coming. It's active. Their condemnation is not idle. And then he finishes um, verse 3. He, their destruction is not asleep. Their destruction is now personified. It is not like, their destruction is not like an executioner who's fallen asleep. No. So as to be oblivious to his duty. No, no, he's not asleep. You know, certainly this is a, a reminder to sinners and saints alike. 
Um, one commentator writes that uh, when the wicked are successful and their misdeeds go unpunished, people tend to imagine that God is asleep and takes no notice. They're getting away with it. They've been getting away with it for a long time. Maybe God's not paying attention, they argue. But his apparent inactivity should not be misunderstood. No, their destruction is not asleep. Well, uh, how about we end on this note? Um, you know, at, at one sense, uh, all of us, left to ourselves, stand before the bar of God's judgment as guilty sinners. Okay? All of us. In the gospel, I want to end on this note. In the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ has lived the absolutely perfect life. Every I dotted T crossed, every motive, every word, every conversation, public or private, all of it righteous. No blame to be laid upon him anywhere. Live the only innocent, righteous life ever lived. And yet, God placed on him the guilt, our guilt, and he bore the penalty, death. Death. He really died. Was in the grave three full days. And then raised. And is alive at the right hand of the Father. I don't want us to get mired down in these the false teachers and their, the criticisms there and the warnings. I want us to end by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our shelter. He is our covering. He is our model for how we are to live. Okay. All right. Well, Lord willing, uh, we'll pick up with verse 4. Next week. Okay. How about I pray for us? And, um, Heavenly Father, we ask for your protection from false teachers. Um, we also ask that you will enable us. You'll be making of us a people who walk in the light and have fellowship with you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.